Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, Bad Dirt. What makes Bad Dirt so bad? The answer? The ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like Bad Dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who is 100% concentrated. No pulp. Here is the captain. It's good to be seen. Good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are excited to be featuring a beer from one of the great brewing companies, and this beer is called Nosferatu by the really good folks at Great Lakes Brewing Company. Don't be afraid of things that go hop in the night. This is a scary good Imperial Red Ale, ABV 8%, garage grade 4 out of 5 bottle caps. And let's give some praise and cheers to our friends that helped us out this week. First up, a big shout out to Patty Callahan for always picking up. Cheers to you, Patty. And a big we like to jib to Catherine and Willing, West Virginia. Next, a big Midwestern shout-out to Rebecca from Aunt Kenny, Iowa. And a big shout-out to Michael in Piedmont, South Carolina. Next, we have Jeffrey in Amesbury, Massachusetts. And last but certainly not least, we have Jessica in Plymouth, Meeting, Pennsylvania. Everyone we mentioned, they went to our website. That's truecrimegarage.com. Clicked on the donate button, which helped us out with this week's beer run. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, B-W-W-R-U-N, Beer Run. Only a few tickets left to our July 9th event at Fat Bottom Brewing Company in Nashville. So get those tickets. You can get those at truecrimegarage.com. Or if you want to come hang out with the captain, July 14th at BrewDog in Cleveland, you can find tickets at my website, captainfathands.com. That is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. The most prolific serial killer in American history. Samuel Little has confessed to 93 murders. Oh, she fight for her life. You don't fight for my pleasure. It's disturbing to listen to, but investigators want to hear it all and more. Jesus, 
she, she was laughing while I was killing them. The most prolific serial killer in American history. I reached over, I choked her, and once uh, she was dead, I pulled her out of the car, looked around, jumped back in the car, left. Little says he has a photographic memory and has drawn sketches of his victims. Drawn sketches of his victims. Mary Brosley was a woman that intimately knew the real-life meaning of the word struggle. Sadly, she had first-hand knowledge of what it meant to struggle. And she fully understood the continued battle of struggling. For Mary, life was far from easy. Her childhood was difficult. And her early adult years were far worse. She kept finding herself falling into the arms of abusive and uncaring men. Falling for and falling in love with men that just beneath the surface were anything but desirable. They say that life is a journey and not a destination. And for Mary, it was a journey of hardships and strife. The roadmap of that journey was not an easy one for Mary to navigate. She was broken by the husband and boyfriend that abused her, and through injury, ailment, and addiction, found herself unable to care for her children. Mary's roads on her life's road map, if there ever were such a thing, had collapsed to a single dark and damp tunnel. The light at the end of that tunnel was so dim that she was convinced that the ferryman blew out the flame on his lantern when she wasn't looking. She had many physical complications and challenges. A physically abusive boyfriend injured her so badly that she had to have hip surgery, which left her with metal parts in her body and a limp. There was also a self-inflicted injury from a kitchen accident when Mary nearly cut off her finger while chopping vegetables and then refused to have it treated. She let the severed portion dangle until it eventually fell off leaving her with a stump at the end of the digit. By 1970, Mary Brosley was 33 years old, and she was struggling. Not struggling to make it. She was struggling to exist. Some of her troubles were roadblocks set up by others, and some were obstacles that she created herself. By now, she was a severe alcoholic. She suffered from cirrhosis of the liver, it was nearly anorexic, standing five foot four inches tall and weighing a very unhealthy 80 pounds. She was pretty much estranged from her family. Sometime in June of 1970, Mary walked away from her life in Massachusetts without so much as a single goodbye to anyone. Her kids were already in foster care and she didn't care for any of the men in her life. The last reported sighting of Mary is from a story that came from a family member, one of the very few who had not turned their back on Mary. This was Mary's sister, Claire. Claire says that on June 12, 1970, she was told that the night before, police picked Mary up walking along a highway. Mary told police she was walking the highway because two men had pushed her out of their car in Palmer, Massachusetts, and she hurt her shoulder. It's unclear where Mary slept that night, but her family was told that she was planning to take a bus back to Boston, where she was staying with her parents. 
Mary never showed up in Boston. She never returned to her parents' home. Claire later told the media that Mary would often rely on and get around by taking rides with strangers, and Mary could often be found in the company of anyone that would provide her with alcohol. Mary's family never heard from her again. Roughly seven months later, on January 24, 1971, a father and son were out on a hunting expedition. What they will find, certainly, is not what they went out looking for. One of the two spotted a leg sticking out of the ground. They reported this immediately to the authorities. And as you guessed it, the leg was attached to the rest of a body, buried in a shallow six-inch deep makeshift grave. But the father and son were not hunting in Massachusetts. No, they were in the Florida Everglades, 1,000 miles away from where Mary was last seen. The body was badly decomposed, and detectives could locate no form of identification from the body recovery site. This was a homicide. The victim was a female, with highly probable sexual assault suspected. Based on the fact that the body was found with both legs through one leg hole of the victim's panties, detectives believed that Mary's killer dressed her after the assault and murder before burying her body. Since investigators could not identify the victim, the county gave the victim a new name, one that no one wants. In 1971, Mary became another Jane Doe. Mary simply disappeared, and decades passed, with not one indication of her fate. Life moved on, children grew up, and the body remained a Jane Doe for 47 years. But thankfully, one day, this Jane Doe would get her birth name back. And sadly, her family would learn what they may have feared all along. Mary didn't just disappear. She was taken, taken far away, and killed. Mary Brosley was located after all of these years, and her killer was too. Mary might have been this killer of women's first kill, but she was far from his last. This is True Crime Garage. San Diego, California, Thursday, September 27th, 1984. San Diego PD receive a complaint of a violent crime. Lori Barros called 911 from her sister's house. She told police that a man whom she did not know beat her up, raped her, and strangled her, and then left her for dead on the side of the road. She was able to provide police with a detailed description of the events that took place as well as the assailant and the vehicle he was driving at the time. According to the report, Lori told police that the man abducted her. She was walking, and this man pulled up in a large American car. He got out, ran up to her, and he pulled her by the throat into his car. Once inside the vehicle, the man threatened her repeatedly, all the while driving to a more secluded location. Once he arrived at a spot that he found to be satisfactory for whatever it is that he planned to do, he put the vehicle in park and then proceeded to brutalize the woman, choking and punching her. The LA Times described portions of the attacks as follows. 
Quote, with his arm still wrapped around her neck, he drove to a deserted, trash-strewn lot at the top of a steep hill. He pulled her into the back seat and tied her hands behind her back with her nylons. He tried to kiss her, and when she tried to shove him off, he began choking her. He asked her to swallow. He did this over and over again, Captain. Lori finally played dead. And the man opened the car door and dumped her out onto a pile of garbage. She believes that the man intended to kill her and that he actually thought that he had succeeded when he discarded her. She was not dead, however, but she lay right where he dumped her. She lay still, taking extremely short breaths, even though she wanted to gasp for air and fill her lungs with the oxygen that he had just denied her. She laid there not moving a muscle. She was afraid he was watching. As the minutes passed, she started to convince herself that he had gone, but she laid there still because now the fear was that he would return and find her alive, and if so, he would most certainly finish the job. Lori believes that she laid there for over 30 minutes or so before she finally got up, stumbled to the nearest payphone. There she called her sister, who immediately rushed out to get her. Once she finally felt safe when she was back at her sister's house, she called the police and reported that she was attacked. And luckily, she was able to provide police with a detailed description of the vehicle and her attacker. That's correct. A good amount of detail, in fact, in regard to the events, the attack that took place, the attacker and his vehicle or the vehicle he was driving at the time. The man that she described to police, she described him as African-American, approximately 40 years of age, about six foot, one inches tall, 230 to 240 pounds with a dark complexion, dirty, unshaven, and he had a gold pinky ring with two diamonds in it. Now, she said that the attacker was driving a two-door large American-made car with a maroon-colored interior. The passenger side window of this vehicle was broken, and there was white tape on the window. So this making this vehicle very distinct and possibly easy for police to spot. He had foam dice hanging from the rearview mirror. She said the vehicle did not run well. So that's a pretty good description of everything, right, Captain? Well, and the key thing there is the broken window with the white tape. Well, that description from Lori will, in fact, lead us to this later event. The following month, on Wednesday, October 24th, San Diego patrol officers happened upon a black Thunderbird parked on a street. This was in an area of the city known for stolen vehicles, sex workers, and drugs. The Thunderbird fit the description of the car reported by the victim of the September attack, the one that we just covered. So, of course, they stopped to check it out, the police. Now, as the officers were shining their lights on the T-Bird, a black man emerged from the car, zipping up his trousers. Flicky, flicky, hands are sticky. According to the officer's statements, the man, quote, appeared to be very nervous. One officer said of the man, he kept looking at us kept looking at the car, then looking at us, and then looking at the car. They approached him and asked him what he was doing. The story he gave was that he had had a fight with his wife, but they had now made up and they were making love in the back of that car. 
but the cops could see bloody scratch marks on the man's neck. Right. They took a look inside the vehicle and saw his, I'm using air quotes here, Captain, wife. She was stuffed on her back behind the driver's seat, legs splayed on the back seat, naked, her eyes rolled back in her head, bleeding and bruised. The officer thought the woman was dead at first, but then she started gasping for air. So the officer could see fresh choke marks on the woman's throat. And remember, he saw the scratch marks on the man. You don't have to be on the job too long to have a good idea what you think took place. So obviously this guy's lying and obviously he's trying to choke this lady to death. And good thing they were there to stop it and arrest him. Yeah, there's a few things that work out here in our favor, right? First, we have the great detailed description given by the first victim. We have the good police work by these two officers by spotting this car in an area that it sounds to me like if you're looking to bust somebody or issue a, a ticket, you can just drive to this area any time of day and find somebody to uh, put in the back of your car, somebody that's up to no good. But they check on this vehicle, and like you said, they, they see that there's something strange going on here. This woman appears to have been assaulted very badly. This man's story doesn't make sense. Of course, they arrest him, and they are told by the man that his name is Samuel McDowell. So Sam's story, well, his original story, will start to fall apart very quickly. And he started to admit some truths to the officers, although, of course, he was not going to be entirely truthful. Sam said that he was angry because he had not gotten his money's worth from his victim. So this woman's name is Tanya Jackson, and she is a sex worker at this time. Sam said that he met Tanya at a bar in downtown San Diego, where the two of them agreed that she would perform a sex act for him for $20. He said she directed him to the location where the officers would later discover the two and his vehicle. He says they got into the back seat of his car and Tanya started fooling around with them. Sam says that he wanted more, but then she started to refuse. This upset Sam. So Sam says that he threatened her and told Tanya that she wasn't going anywhere until he got what he wanted. Sam says Tanya attacked him and he grabbed her around the throat in self-defense. And he's telling the officers this is while the officers are driving him back to the station after they arrested him. They're still asking him what happened back there. It's hard to believe him on anything when he said when he said the victim was his wife and not a sex worker. Well, and then you have this situation of he saying, "Not yeah, I grabbed her by the throat. Yeah, I was choking her, but this was in self-defense. And he's, I mean, he's not making any buts about it. He's telling the officers... I did this, and you know what? She deserved it. So while the officers are driving him back to jail, Sam asked them several times, quote, how's the bitch? Is she going to make it? What a douchebag. Then they accused him of raping Tanya. Sam continued to deny raping her, but admitted that, quote, I did kick the shit out of her. He also told police I should have killed that whore. In both of these cases, the September case and the October case, rape exams and kits were conducted. This included 
collecting Sam McDowell's DNA. So Sam was quickly connected to the attack on Lori Barros the previous month because their findings are going to match up in both of these cases. And this is back in the day when police officers have billy clubs. It'd be nice if they would have just pulled over on the side of the road and he never made it back to the station. For the attacks on Lori and Tanya, Sam McDowell was charged with several charges, including attempted murder in both cases. The state's best evidence in these cases were the two victims themselves, of course, right? Their statements to the police and then later what would be their testimony in front of a jury. But Sam ended up only being convicted on lesser crimes. This is due to some complications with the trial. The two victims were both sex workers. That complicated things, and we'll get into that here in a minute. And Little argued that his only crime was hitting one of them in a payment dispute after she tried to cheat him. Now, this Sam McDowell in court also produced an alibi witness. This was a respectable-looking woman carrying a Bible who said that the two of them were out of town on the night of one of the attacks. So the one where he's caught red-handed, he can't do much about other than to to claim that he was acting in self-defense, but the one where he wasn't caught, he's able to produce an alibi for. Right. So what we have here, Captain, is a situation, yes, those rape kits and exams were conducted in both of these cases. They also connect they also collected this Sam McDowell's DNA. But keep in mind this is 1984. They're not able to go, oh, well, this is the same guy in both of these cases. So he can come up with a defense for the first one saying, that one wasn't me. Even though you picked me up a month later for about the same thing, and now this Lori Barros is picking me out of a lineup, I'm telling you I'm not this guy. And on top of that, I have a witness who comes in. She's carrying a Bible saying, you know what? The two of us, we are together. We're in a relationship, and we were both out of town on the night of the September attack. So he's got a somewhat decent defense here for what should be an easy conviction of two accounts of attempted rape. Well, and also you could make an argument that the second attack that he's caught red-handed, that's an attempted murder charge. Yeah, but in both cases he was charged with attempted murder. Now, per the Washington Post, uh, it says that This Sam McDowell was convicted of falsely imprisoning the second victim, but acquitted of kidnapping and sexually assaulting the woman in the first attack. And the jurors were deadlocked on a host of other charges. So this trial all of a sudden that looked like a slam dunk wasn't going so well for the prosecution. So prosecutors were not very anxious to retry Sam. So they allowed him to plead guilty to two counts of assault with great bodily injury and one count of false imprisonment. Now, I want to read to you a portion of Lori Barris's testimony. This will kind of describe our attacker here and his method and what he was like in that attacking situation. Her testimony says, quote, he liked to feel me swallow with his thumb on my neck. It became a game right before I'd go unconscious. As my eyes started rolling back, he'd let go and ask me to swallow again. He loved when I swallowed. It excited him and he had a smile on his face. 
So she's talking about while this man is choking her, strangling her to death, that when she would start to black out, he's letting go so she can breathe and come to, so he can do it again to her. And going so far that she says that he had his thumb right on the portion of my neck where he could feel me swallow and wanted to feel me kind of swallow and gag and try to gasp for air. This guy is an absolute creep. It's sad, but the reality is, especially in these types of crimes, that the surviving victim is your best evidence. This is often your best tool, if you will, for apprehending your unknown perpetrator in these crimes. And the victim's stories and reporting these crimes, they did get this monster off of the streets, but not terribly long. So unfortunately, the way that this plays out in court, again, we said that it should have been a slam dunk and it should have been. But I'm not trying to blame this on any one or two people here, but the victims themselves just kind of fell apart in the courtroom. So the October victim who had an addiction problem was drunk and clearly drunk in front of the jury when she was at trial and when she was giving her testimony. This could be from her addiction. This could be from the terror that this man brutalized her and now she's got to sit in front of him just feet from this guy. The woman from the September attack, the problem ended up being with her situation is she started to lose credibility with the jury. When she first starts off her complaint to the police and then her testimony to the court was that she was just walking along the street. This guy pulls up, jumps out of his car, grabs her, throws her into his vehicle And he's abducted her and off they go to a secluded location where he tries to kill her. Well, very quickly, it's figured out that she wasn't just walking on the side of the street. She's a sex worker and she has an addiction problem. This caused her to lose credibility with the jury. And now the first attack, he's not looking so guilty in. And the second attack, they're a little confused as to what's going on because He's saying, look, I, yeah, I did fight with this woman. I did assault her, but I didn't try to kill her. What we end up with here is Sam McDowell most certainly attacked both of these women. He most certainly tried to kill both of them. But unfortunately, because it fell apart at court for this, he only serves two years in a California prison. And then he's released on parole. And once he's released on parole, within months of Sam McDowell's release, women in South Los Angeles started dying. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it 
at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. 
Some days I need a pack of lunch and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we are back. Cheers, mates. Cheers to you, Colonel. Cheers to you, Captain. Tall cans in the air. Everybody out there listening, thanks for joining us this week. Now, we're going to move on here to a couple of other cases, and this takes place in 1987 and then 1989 in and around the Los Angeles area. So we're going to go back starting in July of 1987, where we have the first of three bodies that were found that all displayed similar characteristics. They were all found within a few miles of each other. The three bodies were dumped like trash. Now, I know that that is a rather overused statement in true crime, but in this case, these three bodies were actually dumped along actual refuse. The first victim was 41-year-old Carol Alford. Her body was found on July 13th, 1987. The other two homicide victims that were found were Audrey Nelson, age 35, and Guadalupe Abadaca, age 46. They were found in August and September of 1989, respectively. This killer, though unknown at the time to police his identity, let's think about what we know here in the garage as we review those attacks that took place in San Diego. He gets locked up. And then he's out, he's released, and we have these three murders that take place. And you go, you know what? This guy is, he's escalating. He's increasing his frequency of attacks, but not necessarily. This guy already has escalated to this level of frequency. Because in 1984, those two attacks took place one month apart. Just like here where we have two victims that take place just one month apart. This guy, whatever he's into, he requires this type of stimulation so much that he's to the point where he's going out and attacking women, killing them, or in the 84 cases, believing he had killed them within a month of one another. Obviously, his crimes are sexually motivated. Yes, Now for a little more of the grim details of each of the body recovery scenes. All of these victims were found in the same Central Avenue, Alameda Street corridor near downtown Los Angeles. So within five miles of each other. Carol was in a back alley against a fence. Audrey was found in a dumpster, which was located in a nightclub parking lot. Guadalupe was found in an abandoned, creepy old commercial garage structure. All three had been manually strangled, and it was determined that all three were dead when they were dumped. All had been brutally beaten with blows or punches to the head. All were nude below the waist. All had crack in their systems. One victim had male DNA under her fingernails. 
Two victims had semen stains on their shirts. But in the 80s, before CODIS, this was of very little help to the murder investigations. And so the three dead women remain victims of a nameless, faceless predator. Their deaths not linked together until much, much later. These attacks seem similar to me of that of like Ted Bundy. But again, we're going to have another survivor from these attacks. And this is believed to be an attack connected to these others because it's so similar in nature or similar in belief as to what we think happened to the other three victims that did not survive. So another L.A. woman who narrowly escaped the same fate comes forward and reports the assault. And per the Los Angeles Times, we learn some details of that attack. And the Times reported that the woman reported to the city's police that a man had pulled her into his black Thunderbird. Here we see that similar vehicle again sexually assaulted her, then repeatedly choked her unconscious. She awoke to find herself lying left for dead amid trash and broken glass with bruising on her neck and popped blood vessels in her eyes. But she couldn't name her attacker when she reported this to police. And so just like the three dead victims, this case too would go nowhere. This investigation really had nowhere to go. So now we're going to skip ahead to over two decades later. This is going to bring us to 2012. Now, in 2012, homicide detective Mitzi Roberts was assigned to the LAPD's cold case special section, which was funded by a grant from the National Institute of Justice to try to solve the 9,000 L.A. murders that remained open after five years. Her job was screening DNA evidence from cases long since considered lost causes. Many of these cases were murders of women that dated back to the 80s, the height of the cocaine epidemic in the city. Good thing she gets involved because she's going to come across a CODIS search for two of these crimes that happened in 1989. Yeah, so she's working this case in April of 2012. And Mitzi runs across a CODIS search on the DNA that was found on the two women murdered in Los Angeles in 1989. This is the Audrey case and Guadalupe's case. Now, keep in mind, Mitzi's working with resources that the investigators just did not have in 1989. Mitzi arranged for the DNA testing on swabs and items found from those two victims' bodies. Now, in both cases, she got a hit to a man who had been arrested and required to give a DNA sample in connection with a previous arrest. And this man's name was Samuel Little. Yes, and the officer, Captain, she was horrified at what she found when she started reviewing his record. So this man had a rap sheet 100 pages long detailing approximately 100 arrests. This from an article in New York Magazine by Jillian Lauren. Quote, over six decades... He was repeatedly arrested in Ohio, Maryland, Florida, Maine, Connecticut, Oregon, Colorado, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Arizona, Georgia, Illinois, Missouri, California, and the list goes on. Charges include burglary, breaking and entering, assault and battery, assault with the intent to rob, assault with a firearm, armed robbery, assault on a police officer, solicitation of prostitution, DUI, 
shoplifting, theft, grand theft, possession of marijuana, unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, resisting arrest, battery, false imprisonment, assault with great bodily injury, robbery, rape, and sodomy, end quote. And you left out being a huge douchebag. Yeah, that's quite the rap sheet there, Captain. Yeah, scary and individual. Scary individual. Not only that, we didn't even name all of the states that would have been listed there. And so this guy is up to no good, frequently up to no good. He's got all kinds of nasty, horrible hobbies, and he's fine doing them in your neighborhood, my neighborhood, and everybody else's. All in all, this Samuel Little had served less than 10 years in prison in total, despite repeated brutal and sexually motivated attacks on and attempted murders of multiple female victims. So, of course, Mitzi Roberts reviews this information, and she freaks out, right? Why on God's name was this guy on the streets? So she decided she was going to be the one to put an end to this dude, to stop him and put him away for good when others could not. Now, the Samuel Little had an outstanding Los Angeles bench warrant for a 2007 narcotics violation. So that's good news for us in our investigation, right? We got this really bad guy here. He's got this lesser charge, but it's an outstanding warrant. That's a good excuse for us to go pick this guy up and have a long talk with him. Not only are you going to be able to talk to this creep, but you're probably going to be able to put him away for at least a short amount of time. You're hoping so. Now, Roberts, Officer Roberts decided to, in fact, use that warrant to bring him in. But the problem's going to be that she couldn't locate him. From her information, he didn't appear to be in California any longer. And she discovered that this Samuel Little, who was transient, moving from place to place, well, there's some of you out there scratching your heads going, wait, didn't you say Samuel McDowell earlier? Now you're saying Samuel Little? Well, that's because this guy, he's got a list of aliases almost as long as the list of crimes that he's been connected to and convicted of. So he uses aliases like Samuel McDaniel, Samuel McDowell, Willie Mae Clifton, and Willie Lewis, and the list goes on. He was nearly impossible to locate, and Officer Roberts and her team spent weeks dashing from town to town across the southern U.S. as they got hits on a usage of a prepaid Walmart card to which little Social Security disability benefits were being paid. So this is one of those situations where, boom, they get these hits on these this Walmart credit card that's directly tied to the individual that they're looking for, and we're only dashing from town to town or state to state looking for this guy. Or through the snow. Because we're convinced that he's guilty of all kinds of other stuff. In fact, we've already connected him to two homicides. Mm-hmm. You're always a day late and a dollar short. Because you're, you're always chasing this guy and you're getting your information days after he's probably already left that town. So they're running about looking for this individual. They were always about two days behind him, she said. Samuel Little had been arrested in Kentucky for possession of a crack pipe. So they knew that he had been in the Bluegrass State recently. Finally, in early September of 2012... He used that Walmart card as some mini-mart in Louisville, Kentucky. And the sheriff's office was notified and in turn notified the L.A. authorities. 
Roberts contacted the U.S. Marshals and gave them the address of the homeless shelter that this man was registered at. This was the Wayside Christian Mission. They had him in custody within hours. This is after 60 years of committing crimes. But once they arrest him, they're able to get a DNA swab from him so they can do a DNA test against the evidence they have in these other crimes. Yes, this DNA swab, the DNA test, it absolutely links this man, Samuel Little, to the unknown male profile that was found on two of our victims. This is from 1989, the victims, Audrey and Guadalupe. So Samuel Little was extradited to California on the outstanding warrant for the narcotics charge. And he was sentenced in November of 2012 to three years for that crime. But soon he would be termed a serial killer for the murders of Audrey and Guadalupe and Carol, who was the 1987 victim that was found in the same location as Audrey and Guadalupe. And yes, and quickly they'll be able to charge him with three murder charges to Samuel Little. This again from Jillian Lorne, who we will be citing quite a bit in these episodes as she's done gangbusters work on these cases and spent a lot of time working on these cases. She says, quote, Little's genetic material had been detected on the bra and fingernail kit of 41-year-old Carol Alford who had been found strangled in a residential South Central alleyway in July of 1987. It was the tipping point. In January of 2013, Assistant District Attorney Beth Silverman filed three charges of murder against Samuel Little, end quote. Now, at that time, California investigators had no idea that the three murders they were charging Samuel Little with were only and this is a horrible, horrible statistic, 3.22% of his actual murder count. But once they started digging into him, they noted a very disturbing pattern just in his known crimes. Well, when you see crimes like this that are so vicious and you see multiple crimes by the same disgusting individual, it has to come to mind what other crimes is he involved in that's correct and the situation that you have here captain is you look at this and you go okay well we have dna evidence connecting him to these three murders that took place one in 87 two in 1989 but prior to that this dude had been locked up for a couple years on those two attempted murder charges and once you've secured the arrest on him and he's facing three murder charges in January of 2013. This is no young man. He's no spring chicken at this point. Mm -hmm. This is an older dude with a 100 page rap sheet, two attempted murder charges that he somehow dodged. He got off light three pending murder charges. And you're going, what else could this guy have been doing? Two turtle doves. He's been out running the streets and running and hopping from state to state all of his life. Well, what I mean, else has he what else has he done? Who else has he killed? Yeah, because you have to look at a bunch of different crimes that you know he's capable of. Attempted murders, rape, murders. This is going to take us to the great states of Florida and Mississippi. So Mitzi Roberts 
to her horror, to everyone's horror, actually, the records, she says, reflected that Samuel Little's name had come up in connection with two murders and two attempted murders of women in the Gainesville, Florida, and Mississippi areas in the early 80s. It's amazing how much area that Sam Little has covered. But again, we've, we've seen this with other killers like Ted Bundy. Well, on these cases, Captain, this Samuel Little was never brought to trial on three Mississippi cases, which were as follows. One is from the summer of 1980. This is a sex worker named Hilda who met Little at a club. The two agreed on a $50 service fee and went back to her apartment. As soon as the door closed, he punched her in the head, knocking her out. She awoke on her bed naked with Little's hands around her throat. She passed out again. He then attempted to drown her in the bathtub using a scarf wrapped around her neck for leverage. She passed out and woke up only to have him choke her out again. This goes on several times. Luckily, Hilda had a pact with another worker, Dolores, that if either of them left with a John and weren't back in 20 minutes, then the other one would come looking for their friend. Right. Dolores knocked on the door of her apartment, of her friend's apartment, and then yelled through the window, and Little let Hilda go, and he took off. Hilda woke up in the hospital. Somehow, she survived this brutal attack. She didn't bother to report the incident, though, even though she spent three days under the care of medical physicians and staff. In 1981, Samuel Little hired a 20-year-old sex worker named Leela McLean, who had three kids. When she got in his car, Sam Little cold-cocked her while he was still clutching the steering wheel with his left hand. He then punched her between the eyes. He beat her so badly, blood ran from her eyes like tears. Each time she tried to escape, he grabbed her and threw her back in the car. I mean, just if you just close your eyes and try to picture this, how it's playing out, what this woman is saying was done to her, it's horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. This guy is like something out of a horror movie. Each time she tries to escape, he gets out of the car. He's throwing her back in the car. Finally, she's able to get out and she ran half naked across a highway so she could get help. So some good Samaritans pick her up and take her to the hospital, saving her life. Then police did not talk to her about the incident at the time. Basically, no one in a position of authority at this time seemed to care about what happened to Hilda or Leela. It's sad. We've seen so many cases where the victims are sex workers and it doesn't seem like law enforcement works the case as hard as they should. I, I do want to defend law enforcement a little bit here in these situations because it's unclear if with the first attack, it's clearly stated that this was never reported right. to authorities. And unfortunately, when you have the situation, we've talked about this before. Uh, we talked about this when we first started up the garage that you, if you were to decriminalize prostitution or sex work or whatever you want to call those titles or, 
or escorts or what have you, a lot of the time the victims will not report the crime because they are committing crimes themselves. And so you get into this really dicey area of we want these things to be reported because the men that are up to this kind of behavior are the absolute worst. These are monsters. These are individuals. The guy we are describing to you right now will stop at nothing to choke, allow breath and choke again until the person blacks out who knows how many times before he is done and actually kills the individual and then dumps them on the side of the road. So luckily in these two situations, he was not successful. And I think that, you know, you have to question too, this is 1981. Things are different. We do learn from our mistakes. Right. And I do know that in most locations, if a woman shows up beaten and battered like this near death to the hospital, in a lot of locations, I don't know if it's every state, but I believe that the doctor has an obligation to report this to police, whether the, where, whether the person in his care or her care wants to report this or not. This is a matter that needs to be investigated. Well, in this episode, we've already talked about so many crimes, but we have to finish off because we haven't got to the third attack and the Mississippi cases. Yes, and unfortunately, this case here, the victim does not survive the attack. And this took place in September of 1982. We have a 24-year-old victim. Her name is Melinda LaPree. She was a young mother. She unfortunately was working as a sex worker at this time. Similar situation to what we've seen at, at other attacks. Yeah. A man drives up to the King William Motel. This is where LaPree was living at the time and also working. And Melinda gets into this man's car. Well, she's never seen alive again. In fact, her nude body was found on October 4th, dumped in a cemetery ditch. Her death was ruled a homicide. The, there was another sex worker that was at the motel as well that was able to tell police that Melinda got into a Pinto Woody with Alabama tags. So now we're getting some good information, right? The last time that she's seen, this is the kind of vehicle that Melinda was getting into. And by the way, it has out-of-state plates on it. That car attracted attention of police when it broke down in the area on November 24th. And three occupants were suspected of shoplifting turkeys from a local grocer. The cops put together that the Pinto was in fact the same one seen at the King William Motel. And there they arrested a Samuel McDowell on suspicion of murder. And like we know, Samuel McDowell is Samuel Little, but he's going to get some breaks again in these cases where his victims aren't so lucky. He is having some luck with the criminal justice system. Unfortunately, it always seems to play out that way, right? If anybody's going to get lucky in one of these situations, it's almost always the murderer. The murder victim is never lucky because, of course, they lost their life. Yeah, ask OJ about it. The investigators in Mississippi started to put together a case against Samuel Little slash Samuel McDowell, bringing Hilda and Leela to, in to testify. These were the two surviving victims. 
we have a grand jury that's put together, but unfortunately, for whatever reason, and you'd have to ask these people, I don't know, but this grand jury that they put together didn't seem to take any stock in what the two female sex workers had to say. After all, I guess, you know, they agreed to go with Samuel Little. We know that. Unfortunately, there was no physical evidence linking Samuel Little to the murder case, Melinda Lupree. The only witness who saw them together was another sex worker. So this goes to the grand jury, but it does not get an indictment. And because of this, since they're not going to charge him with murder or attempted murder or assault or anything, Samuel Little, Samuel McDowell was free to go. And this pattern happened over and over again, except that it almost never got as far as a grand jury. I guess prosecutors knowing that their only witnesses were sex workers or addicts, what seems to happen here, Captain, is that they cut deals or reduced Sam Little's charges and he walked after doing little to no time at all. So much more to get to. Thanks for joining us here in the garage. Thanks for telling a friend. Until tomorrow. Be good, be kind, and don't let it. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.